that your sacrifice is enough. It is finished. Thank you that it has carried all the way 2,000 years later to us and is applied to us. And every moment we are justified before you because of him. So Lord, we give you thanks and praise. We thank you that you are the risen king and you will return. So Lord, we sing and hear your word with anticipation, longing to be about your business. Come and have your way in this place today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand. You come at the right time when I least expect it, never behind. So I wanna be surprised when you deliver every time on mountain tops. You stay the same in valleys low. You never change. And I believe that I will see the goodness of the Lord. I'm confident. As seasons change, your faithfulness remains. You go, you go before me to prepare a blessing. You make a way, it's more than I could imagine, more than I can fathom or comprehend on mountain tops. You stay the same in valleys low. You never change. And I believe that I will see the goodness of the Lord. I'm confident as seasons change, your faithfulness remains. God of my present, God of my present, God of my future, you write my story, you hold it all together, God of my present, God of my future, 
You write my story. You hold it all together. Keep singing it. God of my present. God of my future. You write my story. You hold it all together. One more time. God of my present. God of my future. You write my story. You hold it all together. And I believe that I will see the goodness of the Lord. I'm confident as seasons change. Your faithfulness remains. Sing it one more time. I believe. And I believe that I will see the goodness of the Lord. I'm confident as seasons change. Your faithfulness remains. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from every fear. Those who look on him are radiant, they'll never be ashamed, they'll never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard me, and saved me from my enemies. The Son of God surrounds his saints, he will deliver them, he will deliver them. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Come exalt his name together. Glorify the Lord with me. Come exalt his name forever. Taste and see, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, blessed is he who hides in him. Oh, fear the Lord, all you his saints, he'll give you everything. 
Give you everything. Sing that again. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, blessed is he who rides in him. Oh, fear the Lord. All you is saints. Give you everything. Give you everything. Magnify. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Come exalt his name together. Glorify the Lord with me. Come exalt his name Let us bless the Lord. Let us bless the Lord every day and night, ever ending praise. May our incense rise. Let us bless the Lord every day and night, never ending praise. Let us bless the Lord every day and night, never-ending praise. May our incense rise. Let us bless the Lord every day and night, never-ending praise. May our incense rise. Magnify the Lord. Magnify the Lord with me. Come exalt his name together. Glorify the Lord with me. Come exalt his name forever magnify the Lord with me come exalt his name together glorify the Lord with me come exalt his name forever precious Lord we thank you so much that we can come and exalt your name together 
we rejoice in your kindness toward us. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Lord, we thank you that when we had no hope, no way of rescuing ourselves or those we care about, you came to the rescue. We thank you that Jesus paid the debt in full so that all who believe are saved. We thank you, Lord, for your marvelous grace. We pray now that as we look into your word, your Holy Spirit, who inspired the scriptures, will be our teacher. Give us ears to hear your voice, Lord. Give us eyes to see the truth and give us hearts of faith to reverently believe what you say and to do what you say. Fill us with confidence in you, Lord, and we'll be careful to give you the praise in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. you would please open your Bibles to the book of Nahum. Nahum. You may have to hunt for a moment. Not one of the more popular books in the Bible. I think I've shared with you before my friends at French Camp Academy many years ago, three of whom were flying in a small plane. And um, the dean of students was the pilot history teacher, also a football coach there, was one of the passengers, and um, the principal, I believe, was the other fellow. They were going to some kind of school conference, and the dean had a plane and was flying them there. They hit some turbulence that was so bad that all three of them thought they might not make it. And the football coach reached in his bag, pulled up his Bible and started frantically going through pages. I think I told this story to somebody recently. Um, forgive me if it was you. But uh, he starts flipping pages, and when they finally did land safely, the principal asked him, Coach Rich, what passage were you trying to find? He said, I wasn't really trying to find a passage. I just didn't want to die and have to face the minor prophets and say, I'm sorry I never read your book. So... Apparently, he was not on that through the Bible in a year plan. He went back to his favorite books over and over. Nahum is not one of the prophets who gets a lot of attention. Um, he has a very specialized message, but it is a message from God. And we need to know what God says to these people. I'll tell you this by way of background. The prophet Nahum was given this message about a hundred years, we think a little more than a hundred years after Jonah was given his message. We recently studied Jonah, remember? Jonah was told to go to Nineveh and warn them, and he didn't want to go because he was afraid they might repent, which they did, and God did what Jonah feared. And 
decided not to destroy them right then. But over 100 years later, that repentance had not lasted. The people had slipped back into sin and gone further even than before. And so more than 100 years after Jonah, Nahum is given a message, and his message is not a warning. It is not a call to repent. It is a declaration from God that you people are toast. You're done. Time's up. That's the message of Jonah, of, Na of Nahum. The message of Nahum is a warning that it's over. We're going to read <clears throat> in chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. This is God's word. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence the world, and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into darkness. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. This kind of message, and I encourage you today to find a few minutes and read the whole book of Nahum. But this kind of message is not unique in Scripture. In Genesis 15, 16, God is telling Abraham about what's going to happen in the future. The fact that he's going to be the father of many nations. And he's going to have a son in his old age. And his descendants are going to um, go into a country not their own. They'll be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. God tells them how long it's going to be. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. This is in Genesis 15. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here 
for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. What is God saying? He's saying, these people are doing terrible things, but it's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. But there's a point where I'm drawing a line. Their sins have not yet reached their full measure, but they will. And when they do, they will be destroyed. That is, of course, exactly what happened. When God brought his people, Israel, up out of Egypt, where they had been slaves, and they left with wealth. And they went into a promised land that God had said would be theirs. And when they went in, they were told to act as God's instruments of wrath upon his enemies and destroy the people who lived there. Don't intermarry with them. Don't just try and get along. Wipe them out. I, I, don't, I, don't, think, I don't think God's telling people to do that anymore. You're right. Now God is saying that he has sent his son to offer salvation and we are to engage in spiritual warfare, taking every thought captive to the Lordship of Christ, proclaiming the good news, standing against demonic foes, bringing healing and blessing to the nations. But God is going to send King Jesus back, not as the humble suffering servant, but as the King of kings and Lord of lords before whom every knee will bow. And as a result, we need to remember what God has promised in John 3, 36. I always say everybody loves John 3, 16. But John 3, 36 doesn't get quoted as often. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, but God, for God's wrath remains on him. God's wrath remains on him. Remains? Yeah, because the reason Jesus came is that all of us, Ephesians 2, were by nature creatures of wrath. All of us in our natural state were guilty of sin and under the wrath of God. We have a plethora of people today saying, I don't think that what I want to do is sinful because I was born this way. Well, let me tell you about how I was born. I was born a sinner. I was born a sinner. I can't say because I've always been inclined toward selfishness and dishonesty that uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Because I've always been kind of, you know, wanting the best for myself that, you know, greed is wrong. Greed is wrong. Dishonesty is wrong. Arrogance is wrong. 
Whatever your particular sin is, isn't justified by the fact that it runs in your family or that you were born that way. We were all born sinners. We were all under the wrath of God. The only hope for anyone is that Jesus came to save sinners. And so it doesn't matter what your particular sin is, you need to be born again. And when you're born again, God isn't still holding your sin over your head and counting that against you. But you're not to continue in it. God forbid. So when you and I are saved by God's grace, we're no longer under his wrath. We are now under the blood of Jesus. We are declared righteous in God's sight on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice and his righteousness. And so God sees me not in terms of my natural inclination, not in terms of my past performance. God sees me in terms of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. So, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 tells us that it isn't just the people of Nineveh who are in trouble. 2 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 5. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from his, the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among those who have believed. This includes you, because you believed our testimony to you. You hear what he's saying? Jesus is coming again, and when he comes, it's all going to be made right. Until then, there's all kinds of suffering and difficulty and sorrow and sickness, and we're saying, how long, O Lord? In the book of Revelation, we read about those who were martyred for their faith, crying out to the Lord, how long, O Lord? And the Lord says, not until all who have been appointed to be martyrs are killed. Just as God said, the sin of the Amorites is going to reach a certain level hundreds of years from now, at which point they will be wiped out. God also says that until the number that God has decreed, the people that God has decreed for martyrdom have been martyred, until that happens, Jesus isn't coming again. Now let me tell you, Many of us are very eager to get the gospel to all the unreached people groups, okay? Because we want folks who haven't heard to have an opportunity to repent. That's as it should be. 
we know that one day gathered around the throne there will be people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation so praise the Lord we're working to get the gospel out we don't talk as much about the fact that some of us are gonna have to die now all of us are gonna die I probably preach that more than 99 percent of the preachers in America but I just, I just think if you want to be a sane person and make sound decisions, you have to remember that you're mortal. You understand? We're going to die. And if you know that, and you realize that God's in control, then you can be like Stonewall Jackson, who was not afraid in the midst of battle, and they asked him why. He said, I'm as safe here as I am in my bed. Because God has determined the number of my days. So he wasn't recklessly doing stupid stuff. He was simply doing what he was feeling called to do without fear. That, oh no, what if, oh, oh, they're shooting. Well, yeah, that's what they do in battle. And he was able to be fearless, not because... I'm Stonewall Jackson. I have nothing to fear because I am macho man. Not at all. The reason he was not fearful was because his confidence was in God. Let me just tell you. If you are really trusting in God, you don't have to be afraid. You, you may say, boy, I hope that doesn't happen. Because, you know, I wouldn't want that to be the next thing on my experience list. Okay, that's not on my bucket list. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to have this happen. No, you, you don't have to be unwilling to declare a preference. God knows I would like to die in my sleep. Okay, I mean, that's my preference. But I don't think, well, because that is my preference, that's what's going to happen to me. I think God knows what's best. And whenever I die and however I die, it's, it's not just going to be the best thing for me. It's going to be the best thing for God's people. Okay? Including my wife, my kids, my grandkids. Happily, they are God's people. But, but I'm not worried about it. When I was in my 40s, two of my best friends who were also in their 40s died. One of them from a brain tumor. The other one from a heart attack. While our mutual friend was dying of a brain tumor, I went out to lunch after church on a Sunday with the friend who would have a heart attack that week. He was in excellent health. We had a very nice time. We chatted together and we talked about our friend Larry who was dying. And we said how hard it was to imagine that Larry would soon be gone. And then on Wednesday, I got a call that John was gone. So, uh, boy, you know, I hear sometimes that those deaths come in threes. But apparently God decided I could live a while longer. And it wasn't because he changed his mind. It's because that's not what he had planned for me. 
But I will tell you that a whole lot of people heard the gospel powerfully through the life and the death of Larry Elliott and John Hoover. God knows what he's doing. And Larry didn't get to heaven and say, no, no, I want to go back. And John didn't do that either. You and I don't have to be afraid. But what if there's this country like Nineveh that, you know, deserves destruction and God decides to destroy them before Jesus comes back? I'm glad you asked that question. What was it exactly about Nineveh that was so hideous? Well, they were extremely arrogant. We're number one. That would have been the chariot's bumper sticker. They were very arrogant, and the reason was because they had a tremendous military, better than anybody else's. Not only that, because their military was so successful in going out and conquering other places, they had accumulated enormous wealth. And so they had tremendous riches, tremendous military might, and tremendous pride. I don't know who's going to win, Celtics or that other team I won't mention. I, I don't know. I mean, you got Christians on both teams. They, they give witness, you know, for their faith. But I will tell you this. I believe there are going to be, some of the players, all praise to God. Some of the players, yeah, baby! Which is not so obnoxious if they didn't also claim to be followers of Jesus. When the final game in the finals is played, I believe there will be a lot of boasting. And a whole lot of the boasting is going to be done by people who didn't play. You know what I mean? People who didn't even have a ticket to watch the game live. People who were watching on somebody else's screen. But they're going to go out from that saying, yeah, we're the best. Let me just tell you, that's obnoxious. You're not on the team. You weren't drafted. But you know what? It's a problem not just in the NBA finals. It's a problem from the human heart. Arrogance. Another problem they had that went along with the riches, they didn't only achieve their riches through military conquest. They also achieved it through their business community. Look toward the end of Nahum's prophecy. Verse 16 of chapter 3, Nahum 3.16. 
you have increased the number of your merchants till they are more than the stars of the sky. Is that wrong? Not necessarily. But listen to what those merchants did. But like locusts, they strip the land and then fly away. Ooh, capitalism run amok. I think capitalism is the best economic plan that helps the most people achieve the most comfort. Socialism and communism have not worked anywhere. Okay? The problem with spending other people's money is you eventually exhaust their capital. So I'm for capitalism but I'm also for responsibility. And if your approach is, we go in, we take what we want, we exploit the environment, and then we move on with no thought of those who come after us, with no sense of replenishing. That's irresponsible, and God doesn't like it, and the Ninevites did it, and it's one of the things God said they were going to be judged for. Just so you know. Oh, Pastor Wood, please tell me you're not becoming a tree hugger. I don't think I've ever hugged a tree. Okay? But I do believe that it's good to plant them and not Bartlett pears. It's not, but what is, what is the kind? Is it not a Bartlett pear? What's, what's the terrible kind of pear tree? Bartlett pears, I think, actually have pears. You can eat them. Bradford pears. Thank you very much. Not Bradford pears. Don't plant those. Those are terrible for the environment. But here's the thing. If your approach to the environment is just selfish, the problem is not emphasis on the word environment. The problem is on the word selfish. That was the problem. It wasn't that they had too many merchants. It's that they multiplied their number of merchants and then went in and just stripped the land. Don't do that. Don't do that. Cultivate it. Be a blessing. Not only that, they were a people who were engaged in idolatry. And you know, one of the main forms of worship in their idolatry was sexual immorality. And God actually cares about people's sex lives. Because, let's say it together, sex is designed by God to be an expression of love between a man and a woman who are married to each other. And so when people just say, I, I, don't, I don't care, I'm going to do what I want that brings me pleasure when I want the way I want. You're thumbing your nose at God. And you're under his wrath. 1 Corinthians 6 says, don't think that people who live like that are going to enter the kingdom. They're not. But then thank God, 1 Corinthians 6 says, and such were some of you, but you've been changed. So, they were a people who were engaged in idolatry, and with that came sexual immorality and witchcraft. Because, as Scripture says in the Old and New Testament, those who sacrifice to idols 
are sacrificing to demons. The idol in and of itself is nothing, but there are demons behind the idol. You know what else, though, they were famous for? They said arrogance regarding their riches and military might, greed, sexual immorality as part of their idolatry along with witchcraft. But one more thing. And this was the thing that Nineveh was most famous for. Violence. Violence and cruelty. Other nations feared them because they didn't just kill people. They tortured them. They publicly exhibited the cruelty with which they would destroy their enemies. And you know who hates that kind of violence? God. Now, one of the things that's interesting is in the days of Noah, God said that he was going to destroy the earth, and one of the main reasons was because of the violence. Well, I don't understand this. God doesn't like violence, so he kills everybody? I don't, I don't see how that works. Well, let me see if I can clarify it for you. You're not God. You're not God. God is the one who is the giver of life, and he is the only one who has the authority to take life. And when we start acting as if his creation, this person, who is made in his likeness, is somebody I can treat like trash because, man, that's who I am. I am the one who takes life. You do that, you're echoing the voice of Satan who sought to put himself in the place of God. Do not try to put yourself in the place of God. The only reason our lives have value is because God declares it so. God made us, we answer to him, and he is the one who has said, this life is valuable. But when people put themselves in the place of God and think that they can go in and not only take life, but experiment with it and torture people, and that becomes glamorous in a culture as it has in ours, then you have a nation that is ripe for God's wrath to be poured out. I do not know what the future holds for this country. I do know that right now many, many people around this country are really concerned about the waves of violence in our society. But we have educated two generations of young people in our tax-funded public schools to believe that you are just an accident of nature. You are essentially just highly evolved slime. There is no 
designer, no author of life, no one who made you in your mother's womb. We have educated people to believe that life is just like any other accident. Children are described as accidents. And millions of them have been slaughtered before they got to draw their first breath. And so far, the courts have not been willing to stop it. I pray God we're about to see a change. But I'll tell you something. We've already killed millions. Millions. Why in the world would we expect children who have grown up with parents who grew up in a culture that said that it's okay to do that to babies? Why would we expect them to value life? When they've been made to believe that their life is just an accident, maybe an inconvenience. Why in the world would they think that other people's lives are valuable when they don't even value their own? Why would we expect anything other than what we're seeing? Tragic, tragic, evil, evil. But what we desperately need is repentance. We need for people to bow before God and say, have mercy on us. I don't know if we are, as a nation, where Nineveh was in the days of Jonah. And if there is a move of God's Spirit and people repent, God will spare us again. I don't know. I certainly hope we're not where Nineveh was in the days of Nahum, when God said, time's up, game over, you're done. I will tell you this, there's only one place of safety. Again, I refer you to John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son, and that word there, believe, is to trust in. Whoever trusts in the Son has eternal life. And so whatever happens to us, we have eternal life. Whatever sorrows, difficulty, violence comes, we have eternal life. But whoever does not trust in slash obey the Son does not have life, but the wrath of God remains on that person. I can't look into your hearts. I can't tell whether or not you really are trusting Jesus. But I know this. If you are, you are safe. If you are not, you are under God's wrath, and I pray that you will repent. 
because there is no other hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you that as Nahum writes, the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. Thank you, Lord. We trust in you. Have mercy upon us, we pray. Deliver us from evil. And we will be careful to give you all the praise. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.